0: listening to audio from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Galatians 1:11 through 2:14. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I see that... But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: You know, it may seem odd at first glance to think that Paul's autobiography, these 28 verses that we just read, are the word of the Lord, that are part of God's word. But these, these verses, these 28 verses that we're going to cover in the next 28 minutes or so, uh, are, are, are integral to the argument of the whole book. That's why we're taking the time to look at the entirety of this, this narrative arc that Paul lays out for the Galatians in order to understand the arguments that's coming later. Now, I know at this point you're probably thinking that our, our, our drive through the book of Galatians is feeling a bit like a teenage driver Right, we hit the gas and covered nine verses at once, and then we hit the brakes and covered one verse, and now we really hit the gas and we're covering 28 verses all at once. I promise we won't cover just one verse next week. We're going to slow down and take this kind of a paragraph at a time for, for the rest of this. Let this be a lesson to you all uh, on how to get through something. So uh, today we're, we're covering 28 verses um, because I- I'm dumb. Um, This is way too much to cover in one Sunday, but I was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's Paul's story, like, how much is really in there? It turns out a lot, and it's all super exciting, and this is fall break, so this is your history lesson for the the week that you got off from school, the weekend that you got off from school. So if you guys are ready, we're going to jump right in and tackle what's going on here in Paul's story, the 15 or so years that it covers, and all of the historical and ethnic and social and religious and political pressure that is all bearing down on this passage in the background. If you're ready. If not, I would say go get some more Jolly Ranchers because we're going to go quick. Chapter 1, verse 11. One of the main themes of the letter of Galatians is this question of authority. How do you know who has the authoritative message? How do you know who is preaching the true gospel? How do you know who's really in charge, whose authority is the highest? See, what's going on here in the background is the Galatian churches have heard from certain teachers that Paul calls them troublesome teachers, teachers who trouble you, they've heard from some teachers that Paul, uh, who's, you know, the guy who wrote this letter, uh, that he doesn't actually have primary authority in teaching his gospel. At best, his authority is secondary or derived from the head church in Jerusalem. That's why these troublesome teachers, the ones who are teaching a an expression of Christianity that is very much influenced by the political situation in Jerusalem. That's why they're trying to overturn Paul's dangerous ideas, saying their message actually is the true good news, because they got it direct from the, the, direct from the top, from the leaders. They got it from the pillars of the church. Paul maybe did too, but he's obviously left out half the message accidentally, maybe, or on purpose. That's why there's an autobiographical section in here, 28 verses, a rare, long reminiscence of Paul's faith journey in his writings. That's why this is in here, because it's the story of his ministry itself that authenticates his authority and lays the groundwork for his message. It's this autobiography that establishes His authority and reinforces His message. That's what we're going to see in these 28 verses as, as we go through Galatians 1, 11 through two fourteen. So, like I said, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 11. Paul says, I would, I, I would have you know, brothers, or in other words, listen up, Brothers, okay, here's something, here's something important you need to know. Now, you'll remember the, the verses leading up to this, verses 6 through 10, Paul has just expressed his astonishment that the churches in Galatia have so quickly, he, he had just done this missionary tour, planted these churches, come back to Antioch, and now he's hearing messengers saying, actually, these other teachers have showed up, and they've said, this is the true gospel. And Paul's writing to them like, I cannot believe how quickly you have turned away from the gospel that I presented to you, the good news of the Messiah, in order to subject yourselves to... The Mosaic Law, to Torah, to the, the covenant law. He's expressing this astonishment, saying, why, why, do, why do you think that? No, I didn't leave out what they're adding in this part about righteousness, about how you have to be faithful to Torah in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. That actually invalidates my message, and he'll explain why in the subsequent chapters. But for now, you say, No. They're telling you that my authority is suspect. Well, here, let me tell you what, what really happened. Verse 11, you need to know this. The gospel that was preached by me, the gospel I preach, is not man's gospel. In other words, it's not a, it's not a human, humanly derived good news. He says in verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, he he wasn't subject to a line of apostolic succession of like, okay, here's Peter at the top, and now Peter has given a message to Paul and said, I, I appoint you apostle, go take this message. He wasn't received like that. Nor was he taught it. It wasn't part of his missionary orientation training. How best to present the gospel? That's where he got this message. You say, no, verse two, I or verse twelve, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ directly from Jesus. You may know the story he's referring to, it's in Acts 9, if if you haven't read it before. This is his Damascus road experience. Paul, Saul at the time, uh, very much against the church and the early church, he's gotten permission to uh, arrest anyone he finds in Damascus who says they're a follower of the way follower of Jesus the Messiah, and he's on his way to Damascus to execute this search warrant, and Jesus shows up. Now, Paul is against this whole movement because it's a movement saying that that Messiah had come, but then he'd been killed, and everyone knows that's not the way it works. When Messiah comes, he comes in power and glory and victory. He doesn't come in death and defeat. This is one of those movements that is threatening to pull the Jewish people away from covenant loyalty and away from the blessing of God that's promised to them when God returns and brings heaven back to earth. So, Paul, Saul, at the time, needs to stamp it out. He's on his way to do this, and Jesus appears, (laughs) and he realizes, oh, Messiah actually had come and really had been crucified and really had been resurrected. And that changes everything now one may think after a moment like that after an experience like that that paul's next move would be okay i need to go to the mothership Uh, let's drive to jerusalem let's find someone in charge there find a teacher ask them hey i experienced this what do you think what's god trying to say uh but paul says clearly no Verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. By the way, if you ever have a vision, please consult with others. Paul can get away with this because he's an apostle. You and I can't, okay? Talk to others and be like, was that really God or was that just last night's pizza? Because there's a really good chance it was just last night's pizza. Anyway, that... I digress. Come back to this. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, that whole thing in here, verse 17, about Arabia and Damascus is a little bit opaque to us mostly because we, we, we don't immediately think in Jewish terms or in a Jewish context. When Paul refers to Arabia later in the letter, he's referring specifically to Mount Sinai. And as a, as a boy growing up in a strictly Pharisaic Jewish home, there's three big heroes of the faith to any Pharisee Jewish boy, Abraham, Phineas, and Elijah all three who are called in the Scripture extremely zealous, the same phrase Paul uses to describe to him, himself. So this Arabia and Damascus thing is, is a reference to him following in the footsteps of one of his heroes, Elijah, who after a, you know, a, a huge ministry success, well, flees, Uh, to Arabia afterwards, flees to Mount Sinai to do business with God, and then is recommissioned and sent to Damascus as a prophet. Uh, when, When Paul sees the risen Jesus in front of him, his first impulse is to do what his hero Elijah had done, go do business with God, and then come back to do business for God. It's, it's only then, it's only after this experience of a commissioning from God and then three years of working it out in Damascus that He then goes up to Jerusalem. That's verse 18. So, Jerusalem, so verse 18, he goes to Jerusalem and says, he stayed with Cephas, that's Peter, but being called that by his Hebrew name, uh, and remained with him at least for 15 days. Acts 9 records the story, and, and it seems like he might have been there a little bit longer than that total, but is only staying with Peter for about two weeks here, because uh, there's quite a bit of public ministry happening while Paul is there. He's, he's arguing in the synagogues. He's actually kind of creating a bit of a stir. Uh, but he says here in verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except... Peter, who he stayed with, and James, Jesus' brother, and follows it up with an oath in verse 20. I am, I am not lying. This is this, Before God, I tell you, this is the truth. Now, he created enough of a stir there with his teaching um, that the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, themselves under quite a bit of political pressure, kind of packed Saul, Paul up and sent him home to Tarsus, Uh, This is at the end of Acts chapter 9. They're like, Paul, I think God needs people in Tarsus too. Why don't you go back home and and continue to work this out there? And there's almost like a tongue-in-cheek statement in Acts when it says, after Paul left, the church was at peace. Sent him back to Tarsus to to work out his conversion experience and understand his own own thinking and his own teaching. I mean, the guy was brilliant, and he had a lot of stuff swirling around in his head that he was trying to all work out and and figure out. So, he goes back to Tarsus where he lives for a decade back home, working his craft, making tents, reading Torah, rereading Torah, rereading the Psalms, the Prophets, trying to understand what implications a crucified and resurrected Messiah has for the Jewish people and for the rest of the world. And he's doing all of this inside the context of a tight-knit Orthodox Jewish community of family and friends that existed within a multi-ethnic, pluralistic, cosmopolitan Roman city. So, for 10 years, he's working and studying and praying and putting together the pieces of his theology, trying to understand how the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, how His death and resurrection applies to the whole world. What does that mean for the Gentiles? How does that work out in new fellowship between Gentiles and Jews? Those are all questions that will be answered as we go through the letter. Back to the the argument at hand. Paul is claiming that his authority to preach his good news message is not some derivative authority. It's not something that he received from on high, like when you were put in charge of babysitting your younger siblings, and mom and dad said, here's the rules. You're not the one making the rules. You're not the one with the authority. You're just the one enforcing them. Paul's saying, that's not me. I'm, I'm not babysitting these churches for the church in Jerusalem. If anything. Paul sees his authority as on par with the apostles, the pillars, the leaders in Jerusalem. Actually, he might feel that his authority is a little bit higher, at least on this question, because he's thought a lot longer, a lot harder, a lot more clearly about the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection for Gentiles, because that's his world, that's his ministry context. That's where his friends are. That's where his family is. That's who he's trying to reach with the good news of Israel's Messiah. So his authority, he says in these first 14 or so verses, his, uh, his authority is spot on, from Jesus, not derived, firsthand, came from the very top. His message... From the same source. Okay, so his authority is secure, firsthand solid. Now, his message comes clearly through in these verses as well. I didn't receive this gospel from any man. I received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ, he said back in verse 12. And while in, in the verses we've already covered, he, he continues to lay out his message. It's woven through there. I want to keep going in the narrative to, to see where chapter 2 takes us in terms of his message. Chapter 2 picks up after a gap from chapter 11, verse 24, there's the 14 year gap where he's living in Tarsus and working out his theology in sort of daily debate and study and practice and discussion. Uh, but at the same time, what's happening just 120 miles or so east of Tarsus in Antioch is Barnabas has been sent up there by the church in Jerusalem. I say uh, sent up there because it's north. But in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem is always up, so they'll say sent down to Antioch, even though it's up on the map, or at least it's up on the map if you're north biased like we are. Uh, Or I I don't know. I just I confused myself in reading these things. I want to make sure you were thoroughly confused as well. Anyway. Barnabas is at the church in Jerusalem. They're hearing that the church down there in Antioch, that there's Gentiles and Jews living and worshiping together, and they send Barnabas to check it out. And Barnabas goes to check it out, and he says, yeah, God is obviously moving here. The Spirit is filling filling people. The church is alive with God's grace. This is good, except they need a teacher, somebody who can help think through how do Jews and Gentiles worship together in this new church community. He says, I remember a guy who was really passionate about this a decade ago. And he goes to Tarsus, and he grabs Saul, Paul, and he brings him back to Antioch. He's like, Paul, we we need your expertise on this issue. Come teach us, show us how this works out. And Paul's been there at least a year, maybe a little bit longer, uh, before he takes this second trip to Jerusalem. It's a trip in chapter 2, verse 1. After 14 years, I went up again. There's the up to Jerusalem thing. Went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. He says, I went up because of a, a revelation, and this is one of the many places in Galatians where we're like, Paul, what are you talking about? Because he's referring to stuff that everybody knows clearly and doesn't think that he needs to really mention in any detail. What do you mean you went up by a revelation? Near as we can figure putting this together in a way that best makes sense, the revelation he's talking about is when a, a prophet named Agabus came to Antioch from Jerusalem and prophesied, "There's going to be a famine uh, up south in Jerusalem." And the Antioch church responds to this and says, "Well, even though you know we're more or less ethnically Gentile and they're ethnically Jew, like for the first time in the history of the world, one ethnicity is going to reach out to another in support, and they take a collection, monetary collection, and they send the money with Paul, Saul." And Barnabas and Titus um, up south to Jerusalem for relief. Some wonder if maybe this was a, a, an outworking of a Jerusalem church that 10 years, 15 years previously had pooled all their resources together and sold everything they had in common and now didn't have the financial assets left in order to support themselves through a famine, but they had the family of the broader church that supported them anyway. And so, long story short, Paul, Barnabas, Titus are heading up south to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. And he takes Titus with him. Verse 2, I went up because of that revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He says, here's what I'm preaching to the Gentiles. I want to make sure, in his words, I'm not running or I have not been running in vain. Not because… I don't think Paul is saying here, like, I think I might be wrong. Could we double-check this? He's saying, this is what I'm preaching. If you're preaching something different, we're pulling this church apart between the two of us, which means all of our work is in vain. So are we on the same page here? And the conclusion, the bottom line that he gets to immediately in verse 3, is even Titus, uh, the Greek guy who converted to Christianity uh, from, you know, up in Antioch, down in Antioch, He came with us. He's Greek. He was welcomed into the church. He was welcomed into the family of God in Jerusalem, and they didn't make him get circumcised. That's like a mic drop moment. Paul's saying, look, the single best known ritual marking for all male Jews and all male converts to Judaism, the one thing that if there's anything, cleanses you from the indwelling power of death and idolatry as a Gentile and makes you righteous, at least righteous enough that you will be included when God brings heaven back down to earth. They didn't make Titus do that. They didn't make Titus go through that. So he's telling this story because it, it corroborates his... Teaching. If even the leaders of the church, the influencers, the pillars of the church community look at Titus, they, okay, they hear the arguments that Paul's making. Here's my gospel that I'm preaching Jew and Gentile, both clean. They're welcomed together before God by faith in Jesus. And they hear Peter's story in Acts 10 and 11 of seeing a vision from God, you know, a sheet that comes down from heaven and animals, and, and uh, God saying, Hey, I've made all things clean don't call anything unclean that is now clean. And they've seen Peter's practice of Jew and Gentile eating together within the family of God. And they see Titus, and they hear Titus's testimony, and they welcome him into the family of God without making him conform to the outward Jewish rituals of righteousness. Okay, if all that's true, then the the troublesome teachers that are traveling around south galatia on their own missionary journey ostensibly with the support and backing of the church in jerusalem if the leaders aren't making titus do this then these guys can't make you do that either you see the point or it's a church divided against itself even down in jerusalem so paul goes on with his story he says in, uh, in verse 9, when, when the leaders of the church perceived the grace that was given to him, they gave the right hand of fellowship to, to me and Barnabas. He says, which is like the ancient biblical way of saying, high five, you are on the right track, you're on the right path, you continue your ministry predominantly in Gentile areas, we will continue our ministry predominantly in Jewish areas. Only, please don't forget the poor, us poor down here in Jerusalem. Paul's like, no, that's that's why I came. So, yeah, I'll remember that part. So, Paul is, as he's going through this story up through verse 10, he's saying, look, even when I laid out my message for the church with a test case right in front of them of a Greek guy who is fully part of our church and then fully accepted into the Jerusalem church without being forced to go through ritual circumcision, like, this is, they're on board with my message, not this other good news that you're hearing. But the story continues in verse 11. There's a break in the narrative, by the way, between verses 10 and 11 that Paul doesn't recount here in Galatians, but it's recorded in Acts. Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey in between verses 10 and 11 of the narrative. That's the journey that planted these churches in South Galatia that this letter is written to. Um, it's all recorded in Acts 13 and 14 if you want to go read it later. But pick up in verse 11. Paul continues the story. When Cephas came to Antioch, so when Peter came down north to Antioch uh, to visit, uh, we assume because he had heard that, that Paul and Barnabas were back from their missionary journey, and hey, time for an update. Let's hear how it went, something like that. When, when Peter came, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, he didn't oppose him the moment Peter showed up. You know, as soon as he rolled into town, he said, look, you, you're wrong. It, what happened here is recorded in verse 12. See, Peter had come to Antioch. He had continued his regular practice of Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping together, taking the Lord's Supper together, eating the meal together. But then, verse 12, certain men came from James. Now, Paul's careful not to say that they were sent by James, simply that they claimed to have authority from James, you know, authority from the church in Jerusalem. And whoever these certain men were, they're not named. We just know that they, they came to Antioch. They said they were there under the authority of the church in Jerusalem, and they ga- began to exert pressure on the church to, to separate. Jews eat at the table over here. Gentiles eat at the table over here. Now, I know to us that may sound like, well, it's just bad table manners, right? Like adults' table, kids' table. But there's a whole lot more going on underneath the surface. Uh, these, these people who came from James, they're called the circumcision party, a little bit later, are essentially saying to the Gentiles, hey, we love that you are interested in following Jesus. But try to keep in mind, Jesus was Jewish. So if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to become a Jew first. And there was more to it than, than that. The social and political background and all of the ethnic and, and political and religious pressure that's bearing on this church, this small multi-ethnic church in Antioch, is, is threatening to, to rip the church apart. We'll just walk through the different factions that are present in, in Antioch and in Tarsus and in the cities in Galatia and basically all across the, the Roman world. There's sort of the same kind of conflict happening over and over again. Uh, On the one hand, we've got Gentile Jesus followers, women and men who have come to faith in Jesus uh, here in Antioch because of the preaching and teaching of Barnabas and and Paul. And when, when you come to Jesus in this world, it is not just a personal moment of internal transformation and feeling uh, strangely warmed. There's there's a whole lot more to it. It is a radical change of lifestyle, because every single day of the Roman calendar is dedicated to the worship of some god or goddess. Every holiday, every festival, every weekly, monthly, annual procession it, it takes place within the context of the worship of Rome of Caesar the worship of other gods. I mean, the main highway going through, Galatian is, through Galatia is called the road on which we worship the Son of God, Caesar, right? So, you can't even, like, walk to another town without paying homage to the gods. And so, uh, Gentile believers in Jesus who, Gentiles who come to Jesus, I mean, immediately throw away all the household idols Paul's very clear in Thessalonians. You turn from idols to worship the true and living God. They throw away the household idols. They stay away from the temples to Caesar and Rome. They stop calling Thursday Thor's day because they don't want to worship Thor, so they call it something else. I thought that was funny. Um, Odin's day, Wednesday, like, anyway… So, they stop acknowledging all the gods that are behind all the little things that go on in their life, and they say, no, we are exempting ourselves from the worship of Caesar, who called himself the Son of God. We're exempting ourselves from worship of Him and worship of Rome entirely, which was not just a personal decision. Everybody lived right on top of each other in these old cities, and your neighbors would notice if you stopped showing up at the processions. You stopped paying homage to the gods in the meat that you bought in the market and all sorts of things. And this is a problem because everything bad that happens to a city is caused by the gods. Fire, famine, flood. Any of these things happen is because the gods are angry. What makes the gods angry? Neglect. If you stop worshiping the God of your city and something bad happens, whose fault is that? Yours. So we've got Gentile believers in Jesus who are no longer worshiping everything going on in their their, their civic religion. You know, we don't bow the knee anymore to the gods of our city or the gods of our state, the gods of our country. And then something bad happens and they are immediately blamed for it problem is they're saying, no, 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 no. we're exempt from this worship in the same way that the Jews are exempt. See, Jewish communities across the Roman world had an exemption. They they were not forced by law to worship the gods of Rome. They were allowed to worship their own one true God uh, because ruler after ruler after ruler had discovered that the Jews would rather die than worship idols, and instead of just rounds of killings, they said, okay, fine, you can worship your own one God as long as you pray to him for Rome. As long as you do that on our behalf, we'll call it good, we'll, we'll make a truce here, and you guys are exempt. So they're exempt already, and now we've got Gentile Jesus believers who are saying, hey, actually, we worship the same God, so we're exempt for the same reason. And the Jews over here are going, whoa, whoa, hold on a second, <laughs> Like, official permission is one thing, but that doesn't mean our neighbors aren't angry with us when something bad happens. So, if we've got Gentiles now who are saying, we get that same exemption, but you're not even bothering to become Jewish, you're just going to stir up anti-Jewish sentiment against us. That is not okay. Civic authorities, meanwhile, the people actually in charge of the city are pulling their hair out because what are they supposed… is this an inter-Jewish conflict or is this a a civil conflict that needs to be mediated. And in some places, uh, like southern just farther west of Tarsus, they're like, it's an inner Jewish thing. Let them handle it. But here in Southern Galatia, they're like, no, 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 this is like this is a civic issue. We need to get in. We need to to rule on this. So you've got these three groups all putting pressure on each other and on this church. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, there's this rumor going around that this Jesus of Nazareth guy who thought he was a Messiah, was actually plotting against the temple and the destruction of the temple by colluding with pagans, by bringing Gentiles into fellowship with Jews and compromising their righteousness. So when non-Jesus-believing Jews in Jerusalem hear what's happening out there in the diaspora where everybody's spread out and they hear that Jews and Gentiles are eating together, they're putting pressure on the Jewish leaders of this new messianic movement within in Jerusalem to say, I thought you guys were good Jews. Like, what's going on here? And so, they're turning around and putting pressure on the cities out here saying, for the love of God, literally, please, if everyone would just become Jewish, this problem would go away. If everyone would just conform to Judaism, adopt the practices, adopt the Sabbath observance and the food laws and the circumcision and all of that, then all of this political pressure would go away, the social pressure would go away. Just become Jewish and then follow Jesus, which is a, sounds like a great plan, except it completely undermines the truth of the gospel message that Paul is preaching. And he's had 15 years to think about this so he's not backing down. Anyway, certain men come from James. Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Jews over here, Gentiles over here. Different tables, different circles, different righteousness levels, different purity levels, the true family of God and the wannabes. That's a problem. That's a problem. You can read Paul's grief in these letters, when, or in these words, when he says, and then the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jews in this mixed race, mixed ethnicity church, they, they acted hypocritically following along with, they play acted following along with Peter, and, and even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul's like, Barnabas, we... We prayed together. We ate together. We worked together. We went on a missionary journey together. We planted churches together, and even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. His teachers had come in and they said, okay, Jews are righteous, of course, because they worship the one true God. Gentiles are not righteous by definition. They're sinners. We talked about this a little bit last week. Once they come to Judaism, then they can come. To jesus and paul says n- 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 no <laughs> no paul says jesus followers must share meals together because Jesus' death has broken the power of idols over everyone gentiles are no longer members of the sinners by definition They've been freed from the power of idols by Jesus' death and resurrection, and so now can, by faith, become part of the community of the, the righteous ones. To share meals together, Than to sit across the table from a non-Jewish neighbor who is also a believing member of the family of God, is to sit across the table and share that meal is to say that Jesus had defeated the power of sin and death that the new creation has dawned right in the middle of the old creation, the old world, and that, that Torah and its, its temporary restrictions have been set aside in favor of the kingdom of the Messiah. To insist on eating separately is to say that Jesus' sacrifice has not defeated sin and death, that the new creation has not yet come, and we're all still subject to the old world, and that the kingdom of the Messiah has not yet dawned. So keeping Torah, keeping covenant law faithfully, is the only option for righteousness. So you can see why why Paul speaks so severely to Peter, chapter 2, verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like Gentiles, not like a Jew, which doesn't mean that Peter was off worshiping idols, just that he was, eating, he was eating across the table with Gentiles, and we're fairly sure that not all the food was kosher. Says, if, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? He, he's saying, okay, Peter, explain this one to me. Either you were wrong before… When you followed the vision you got from God saying that everyone is clean and all are welcome to come to God through faith in Jesus, or you're wrong now by saying, actually, um, it's okay for me to live like a Gentile, but Gentiles have to live like Jews. So, Paul, were you wrong before, or Peter, were you wrong before or are you wrong now? Which is it? Because this is Paul's core message throughout Galatians. Either Jesus is the Messiah whose death has defeated the power of sin and death and idolatry and whose resurrection ushered in the kingdom of new creation, or He isn't. The only way for us to be counted among the righteous who will inherit heaven when God returns to bring heaven back to earth is to submit again to covenant law, to Torah, But if you do that, Paul argues in the rest of the letter, you're already condemned. You're just right back where we were before, before Messiah came. So, let me summarize uh, Paul's message by quoting one commentary on this passage. Uh, The author says, Either it was true that the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit defeated the powers of the old age, rescued people from it, and transformed them from within, or it wasn't. And if it was true, then the rescued people would form a single group, one family. Deny that and you deny the the central gospel message. Put more shortly, the Messiah has one family, not two. One family, not two. Now, I've, I've gone to great lengths in, in this sermon and then the other two before as we've gone through these first two chapters of Galatians. I, I've gone to great lengths to set up the historical and theological and social and ethnic background of what, what's happening behind this letter, um, not just because I enjoy all of these nerdy little history details. But because if we don't understand what's going on in the background, then it's hard to understand the argument Paul's making. We end up just asking him our questions and then looking for answers to those questions instead of asking him for the answers to the questions he's being asked by the people he's writing to. So I'm tempted to say that this week's sermon is basically just a preamble to next week's part two comes in seven days when Pastor Jeff comes and walks us through some of the most famous words and most difficult to understand words that Paul has ever written, Galatians 2 verses 15 through 21. But there is a few lessons, takeaways we can draw from Paul's autobiography, his story of his own faith journey. See, Jews of Paul's day were tempted to exclude people from coming to faith in Jesus because of their ethnicity. Not necessarily something that we're we're tempted by these days. We don't look at groups of people or classes of people and say, you as a whole category cannot come to faith in Christ. We tend to be more tempted to exclude people from coming to faith in Jesus because of their morality, not their ethnicity explain what I mean. Uh, like we've said, the Jews of Paul's day saw the world as essentially divided into two. You had the sinners and the righteous. Gentiles are sinners by definition because they don't worship, uh, they don't worship Yahweh. That's what makes them Gentiles. Therefore, they are categorically sinners. Jews are categorically righteous, but the righteousness can be lost. It can, can become polluted by too close interaction with Gentiles. And you don't want to risk that righteousness. So, most Jews thought of this new Messiah movement as being strictly Jewish. So, if you're a Gentile, you know, a sinner by definition, then first you become Jewish, then you come to Jesus. You have to cross the line into Judaism before you can cross the line into believing in Jesus. Paul says, no, He's thought this through. If Jesus is the Messiah, dead and resurrected, crucified and risen again, then He's not just the Messiah of Jews. He's the Messiah for the whole world. If He has defeated death, then He has defeated the powers of the entire world. That death and resurrection has redeemed, has bought the Gentiles out of the category of sinners. In other words, Gentiles don't need a good Jewish cleansing before they can come to Jesus. There aren't circles within circles, rings within rings, more doors that you have to go through in order to get to Jesus. You see, whether you're Jewish or you're a Gentile, you're equal before the cross, you come to God through faith in the Messiah, through faith in Jesus. They said, clean yourself up by becoming Jewish, then you can come to Jesus we tend to say, clean yourself up by living right, thinking right, acting right, and then then we're willing to say, maybe you've come to Jesus. You know what I mean? Let me ask you this question. If you were pressed, somebody said, how do you know that you're a Christian? How would you answer? Most of us will say, objectively, objectively, I know i'm a i am know i'm a christian because of my faith in jesus christ but then most then most of us myself included we live out subjectively a sense of how well we're performing for god to know if we're really believers or not when was the last time that you looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like man if i were a real christian i wouldn't have just done this or that or this other thing that you're thinking about. And that's toxic because it bleeds out of us and onto the community around us. We start to look at people around us who maybe haven't cleaned up their lives to the same extent that we have, and we begin to doubt their faith. That person can't be a real Christian because they're still sleeping around. That person can't be a real Christian because they're, they're living with someone they're not married to. This, that person can't be a real Christian. They didn't vote the way that I did they can't be a real christian they've gone too woke well they've not gone woke enough that person they can't be a real christian they're not involved in the right kinds of ministries that a christian should be involved in they're not volunteering in the right way they're not showing up regularly they're not uh, they're not doing the right things they're not tithing like the full ten percent that person they cannot be that person can't be a, a real christian because and you fill in the blank You may think this doesn't particularly apply to you, but let me ask you this question. Can you joyfully worship next to someone who disagrees with you on many of the things that you hold absolutely dear other than this one faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you can't, if you say, look, this is what real worshipers look like and and if you if you don't look like this you need to go stand over there or be in the back or be not near me then you might be given into the same temptation that the jews of paul's day were because they said clean yourself up get circumcised observe the sabbath keep the food laws and then you're good to go with us in jesus and we tend to say clean yourself up practice the right kind of morality which is almost exclusively about sex and politics. And if you do nothing else, at least make it look like Jesus is solving your problems, and then you're good to go with us and with Jesus. For Paul, the only line that mattered, the only line in the church... It was not the line between good morality and bad morality, or between good traditions and bad traditions, or between good Jew and bad Gentile. The only line in the church was the line between faith or no faith. Faith in the risen Jesus or no faith. Now, he'll go on to argue, and we will definitely hit it, that faith results in a changed life. And You can see that change happening in the lives of people who are following this Jesus by faith. But that whole new way of living doesn't precede faith. It follows it. You're not cleaning yourself up so that Jesus will accept your faith, but because Jesus has accepted you by your faith. You're free from that kind of law-keeping, free from trying to earn your way to God, free from being clean enough, to come to Jesus, you're free, free to follow, you're free, that's the freedom that Paul offers in his good news message, you're free because of what Jesus has done for you, it's a, it's a, it's a message he's still offering today, you're free. If you want it let's pray father you are so gracious to us in giving us the offer of freedom an offer we admit we sometimes rebuff for the comfort of for the comfort of, of, of rules and regulations and restrictions for the comfort that comes with knowing we're doing right Father, help us to rest in the freedom you've given to us, the freedom that Paul will explore, the freedom that comes in following Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.